sermon series focused on the Word of God, the eternal living Word. And the reason that we jumped into this a few weeks ago was because of a lot of the questions that people struggle with the Bible. Is the Bible true? How can I really know that the Bible is God's divine truth and His Word? And can I trust the Bible? Uh, and so we have been uh, looking at not what other people have said about the Bible, but we've been actually looking at passages in the Scriptures to uh, unfold what the Bible says about itself, particularly uh, its claims and its impact that it's had on people. And last week, Pastor Stan reviewed for us uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, where Paul is speaking to Timothy, and he talks to Timothy about how from his infancy, uh, his mother, his grandmother, had uh, taught him the Holy Scriptures that would make him wise for salvation, and how the Scriptures were inspired, and actually the word means to expire. It is actually God's breathed word that he spoke through even fallen prophets and apostles in order to preserve and to communicate to the world and to us uh, his divine truth that is able to equip uh, his people for works of service and and so we, we looked at that passage, and I was, there's uh, about 25 men right now or so at a retreat, uh, fathers and sons spiritually that are trying to encourage each other in those scriptures. Uh, but today, we're going to explore the nature of God's word and its relationship to our rest, to our rest. And we'll look at Hebrews chapter 4, and we'll be focusing on verses 11 through 16, but to give context, we'll read the beginning of that passage, starting with verse 1, Hebrews chapter 4. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as, it, just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he said, I, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said, he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted, just as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is the word of the Lord. So the writer of Hebrews is addressing urban Christians uh, who are under the, the condition and the hardship of persecution. In some passages, we find that these Christians were having their property, property confiscated, uh, their finances confiscated, uh, they, some were in prison, and as a result, many of the believers were struggling with faithfulness to profess their faith, and they were staying away from worship and staying away from their house churches. Uh, it also says that uh, they should have been teachers and leaders, but they were still depending on the milk of God's word, and so their growth was stunted. And so the author of Hebrews sends them a letter, and it's actually been uh, it's so many run-on sentences that it looks like it's a single sermon. It's 13 chapters, and it's been called a word of exhortation. And it's the same word that is used to describe the Holy Spirit, parakaleo, which is he comes alongside. And so these words were to come alongside these Hebrew Christians for encouragement and consolation and comfort and refreshment. And in this fourth chapter, we just read, it might seem like it's full of warnings and admonitions and threats, and there are those to be sure. But if you were to sit down and read the entire 13 chapters of Hebrews, you would find that for every one uh, threat or warning, you would find 10 encouragements and consolations and comforts. The focus of the writer in leading up to chapter 4, which is on the call of God's people to enter his rest, has been on encouraging these Hebrew Christians to be captivated by the Savior that they have. That this Savior is the one who is the fulfillment of all of the prophets. Uh, that this Savior that they have is the one who created the universe. Uh, that Jesus is the unique Son of God, the exact image, the spitting image of his own Father. Uh, that he is the purifier of sins and he reigns on high. And that Jesus is superior to the angels, he's superior to Moses, and superior to the one who's been managing God's whole household. And because of what he has done and because of who he is, you and I can trust him, we can hope in him, and that we can rest in him. And so in chapter 3, the writer warns these Hebrew Christians uh, not to be like the Israelites in the wilderness, who, who though they heard and experienced the good news of God's deliverance out of Egypt, and he was, they, God rescued the people out of Egypt and delivered them from, their, from slavery, that even though God showed them all of his grace, they rebelled against God, they, they rejected God, and they rejected his grace. And because of that, and they pursued other gods, God said they would not enter his rest, and they died in the wilderness. They did not go into the promised land. But now here in chapter 4, the writer turns to the Hebrew believers and he tells them that there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And he calls them to enter that rest. He doesn't just call them to enter that rest. He actually gives them the means of strength in order to enter that rest. And it is the word of God. 
And here we see God calling these struggling Hebrew believers, and he calls us to the word of his rest. Uh, in verse 11 and 12, he says, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. And he says, For the word of God is living and active. And the writer connects our rest to the word of God as living and active. And the writer here shows us in this calling, in this word of his rest, that there is a striving for this rest, that, that there is a surgeon of God's rest, and that there is a sympathizer for God's rest. So we struggle resting. I struggle resting. Uh, Thursdays are my day off. And uh, this past week, uh, I involved myself in probably more than I should have. I, I've been working on uh, creating a shed, and I had formed it, and Thursday I was to pour it, and I had ordered two cubic yards of concrete. At the same time, I decided I was going to help my daughter, Melissa, with a plumbing project. Her sink uh, needed a repair job in her basement, and I, I said I would come over and help her. And so I had ordered the concrete. I said, I'm going to go over and help her. And after about two or three trips, I was trying to find the right pipe sizes and stuff like that. By the way, I, my dad was a plumber, and he was a builder, so I kind of grew up in, in some of this. And so... I wasn't able to finish that job, and the concrete truck was on the way. And so I'm working, and I tell you, concrete will work you. It will, like, you know, it sets up. It's a chemical kind of condition, and uh, you have to, you know, screen it, and you have to float it, and you have to finish it. And before I could, like, put the, the, the bolts into the concrete, it had already set up. And I said, what have I got myself into? Why did I decide to do this project? Well... After I basically did the basic finish, I went downstairs in my basement and I heard like water that I hadn't heard before in a particular guest room. And as I walked in the guest room, water was pouring down out of a light fixture into the carpet and all over the floor. And uh, so I immediately went to the front of the house and turned the whole water off for the whole house and uh, wanting to find out where this leak was from. And so I, you know, <clears throat> I put a little hole in the ceiling to see if I could see where the source was. And I couldn't find the source. And I put another hole and made it a little bit larger. And I still couldn't find the hole. And then I started to go into a slight panic. And I said, help me, Jesus. And, uh, and so I made a little larger hole. I ended up just taking my hands, just starting to rip down whole sections of sheetrock. Uh, I ended up tearing about a third of the ceiling down. Six, uh, it was about six foot by 20 foot. The water was coming all the way to the front of the house. Apparently a hose bib had leaked and was shooting water in, and it was just flowing all the way through the ceiling, 20 feet to this light socket. Uh, after that, I went to my daughter's house and finished that plumbing project. I came home sometime late that night, uh, exhausted, sore. I decided I was going to take a bath. I said, this was not a day of rest. Now, I'm grateful that this was an aberration of my normal days off. But the reality is, is that we struggle with resting. Uh, 
the struggle of resting is epidemic in our society. There, there was an author by the name of D Daniel Liviton, who is uh, an author of The Organized Mind, Thinking Straight in the Age of Information Overload. Uh, he wrote an article in the New York Times on rest and reset button, and he said that there's an essential need for a real break in downtime for our brains to be functioning at their beautiful, creative, daydreaming best to solve needed problems. Our brains need breaks in order to function well. But due to false guilt and addictive compulsions, many Americans struggle in taking time off and not uh, responding to, say, emails or Twitter, Facebook, Snapchat, and other media. And I know that some of you are having a hard time turning your smartphones off while I'm preaching or hearing boring sermons. According to a 2011 study, on a typical day, we take in an equivalent of 174 newspapers worth of information, five times as much as we did in 1986. Uh, poet T.S. Eliot uh, was rather prophetic. Uh, he died in 1965, but he wrote about the, these things before computers and smartphones in a po poem that he wrote, Courses from the Rock, and a section of that goes like this. The endless cycle of idea and action, endless invention, endless experiment, brings knowledge of motion, but not stillness. Knowledge of speech, but not silence. Knowledge of words and ignorance of the word. All our knowledge brings us nearer to our ignorance. All our ignorance brings us nearer to death, but nearness to death no nearer to God. Where is the life we have lost in living? Where is the wisdom we have lost in knowledge? Where is the knowledge we have lost in information? The cycles of heaven in 20 centuries bring us farther from God and nearer to the dust. Wow, I mean, I think that T.S. Eliot really nailed our condition in our society. He links the endless action and information overload with an attack against our relationship with God. Knowledge of words and ignorance of the word. Maybe you and I are not feeling the external forces of persecution against our faith in our society, but there is a hidden and subversive forces of persecution against our faith that want to distract us from a deepening relationship with Christ, that want to keep us busy on non-essentials, to have our minds and our hearts overstimulated so that we can't hear his still small voice and to be occupied by anything rather than to give us the rest that our souls so desperately need. The writer of Hebrews again tells us that we need to fight for the rest of God. Uh, and so God calls us in this passage to the word of his rest. The striving for rest. Let us therefore strive, verse 11 says, to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. The word here, to strive, means to endeavor, to do diligence, to labor, to study, to exert oneself. And what kind of rest is the writer talking about? Well, the passage brings up uh, the origins of Sabbath rest in creation. That, and, and by the way, Sabbath means to stop, to cease. God created the heavens and the earth in six days, and on the seventh, he stopped, he ceased. Uh, and he made that day holy, it was set apart. Uh, and so 
God blesses this seventh day. The climactic act of creation in the creation week was the creating of man and woman in his image on the sixth day. But the climactic celebration of the creation week was when God rested and celebrated his creation with the man and the woman on that seventh day. The first day of the man and woman's life was in celebration and in rest with their God. And God said, as he looked out over his creation, this is good. <laughs> this is very good. This is excellent. This is perfect. This is beautiful. And so Adam and Eve celebrate this. And uh, the rest is, yes, from physical and mental work of creating and sustaining and producing uh, to acknowledge that God is the sustaining, creator, producing God. But work and rest became infected with the fall. Uh, creation resisted man's creative producing. Toil and sweat of the brow now infected his work. Uh, sin infected all of life. And so we have this psychological attacks against us. We, we think that my value is, on, is based on what I do, how I perform, or my value is based on my appearance and how I look, or my value is based upon my wealth or what I achieve in, in the society. And all these attacks build in anxiety, and, and they, became, they become slave drivers. But our relationships are also infected. Uh, instead of working and affirming each other, there's competition and seeking power plays and dominating others for significance and staying on top. And then, of course, our relationship with God is infected. And we can't trust God. Uh, we think that God doesn't love us. He hates us, and he's far from us. And so man works to save himself. But here's the good news. The good news is that God did not leave Adam and Eve. He came after the fall, and he approaches them, and he engages them, and he covers them, and he promises them that there will be the seed of the woman that will crush the head of the serpent in the future. And so from Genesis chapter 2 all the way through the end of the scriptures, we find that God's unfolding redemptive plan as he is going to redeem a broken universe and uh, redeem uh, people to himself and to reconcile and to restore all things to create this new heavens and new earth. And so the good news began. But here's the issue. The issue is we struggle resting. We struggle resting. And so while the uh, Psalm 95 that we actually uh, read today, at least a portion of that psalm in our call to worship, uh, you'll see that uh, he opens this psalm with, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord, let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. We went through this. Uh, we went all the way to verse 7, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. And that's where we stopped our call to worship, our responsive call. But see where the psalm leads. It says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as our fathers did in the wilderness. And so he says, for 40 years, they are people who go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways, therefore I swore my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. The good news, the gospel came to the Israelites in the wilderness, but they rejected their Savior. And so God says, because you have rejected, because you would not believe my grace and my love, because you chased after other gods, so that you would not rest in my 
provision and my security in the midst of the testing in the wilderness, you will not enter that rest. And so the call of this psalm is to us that today is a day of salvation. And we are called to be a people that practice faith, to trust in God in the face of all of his goodness and, and to, to worship him. And so good news comes. In the hard circumstances of our wilderness, in the hard circumstances of our desert times, we will be tempted not to trust God, not to believe. We must fight that temptation. Faith takes work, not good works of my efforts in order to earn, win or earn God's favor, but works of trusting, believing in the God of grace. Uh, you know, when Jesus uh, was before the religious rulers, they asked him, what must we do to do the works of God? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Jesus considers faith something that takes effort. It takes effort to repent and to trust in God. Uh, many times I struggle. I struggle trusting God. I struggle believing often in the things that he might be telling me. But it takes work and it takes effort to keep trusting and believing. Uh, John Calvin said this, it is easy to use the words faith and repentance, but they are the things that are most difficult to perform. The person, therefore, that makes the worship of God consist in these by no means loosens the reins of discipline, but compels people to the course which they are most afraid to take. It takes effort to believe. It takes effort to trust because a lot of times our circumstances tell us that God is far from us, that he doesn't love us. Uh, Thomas Watson talks about repentance as seeing your sin, sorrowing over your sin, confessing your sin, being shamed of your sin, hating your sin, and turning from your sin. That's a lot of, you know, to repent really takes a lot of effort. And so we find that the writer of Hebrews tells them to take, make every effort to strive to enter uh, the rest. John Owen talks about what is the word of God that he is referring to here that calls us into that rest. Uh, he says, make every effort to enter that rest, for the word of God is living and active. And so God does not leave us alone in our faith and repentance. He gives us, he gives us the means in which we are to find strength. So what is the word of God here that he's talking about? Well, the John Owen makes a strong case that the Word of God is not here considered to be the written scriptures of the Old and, or, and even the New Testament that we have. But they certainly include that. But the Word of God, he says, is the eternal Word of God, which is actually Jesus Christ, the Word of God. Uh, and so we find that that this Word is alive and powerful. It's not just words written on a page but it is the living, reigning Christ who is the author of Scripture. And so this Word of God is living and active. And when you look at Hebrews, it opens up in chapter 1, and it opens up with these words long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Jesus is the Word of God. And of course, First John, or John chapter 1, tells us in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then it says in verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, 
and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, we don't worship the Scriptures, but we worship who the Scriptures point to, and we worship the author of the Scriptures. And so we find that all of the Scriptures are pointing to who Jesus is. And so he calls us to make every effort to strive to enter that rest. How does the Word do that? How does the Word give us encouragement and strength to rest in God? You know, in Psalm 119, he says, At midnight I rise to give you thanks for your righteous laws. And Psalm and the 164th verse says, Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous laws. Well, uh, I know that many of you uh, who get the prayer wrestlers list, um, and if, you, if you'd like to be on that, we can add you, just call the church office. But many of you have been uh, praying for my son, Calvin, who lives in Seattle. Um, Calvin's about close to 30. Uh, he got married a couple years ago, but uh, his health has been declining over the last couple years, uh, kind of mysteriously, up until a few months ago where he was unable to work. So he's been unemployed. And he's gone through many, many doctors, and finally uh, he's seen a specialist that has determined that he has Lyme's disease, you know, and that has, he's had it for a while, and it's embedded in his nervous system and has just really wreaked havoc. Uh, and, uh, and plus he was living uh, in a place of a lot of moisture that had mold that was uh, also, also uh, messing with his uh, immune systems. Um, and so this has been a really dark time for my son, and Ray and I have been really lifting him up in prayer, and a lot of you have been joining us. Um, and while Calvin's been through this great trial, uh, a dark time, dark night of the soul, uh, he has been memorizing Hebrews. He's actually memorized seven chapters, the first seven chapters of Hebrews, which is quite remarkable. And so he tells me that, like, you know, to go to sleep, he'll be rehearsing verses in his mind. And in the, in the night, if he wakes up with an anxiety attack, he'll start to rehearse uh, the scriptures of Hebrews. And I asked him, I said, I said, you know, what particular verse has really meant a lot to you? And he says, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, uh, which says about Jesus, although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. <laughs> And Calvin has been learning a lot in his suffering. Uh, I asked him, I said, well, you know, what other passages have really been meaningful? And he says, well, I have learned that Psalm 88 is my favorite psalm. Psalm 88. Now, of all the psalms in the scriptures, uh, Psalm 88 opens with despair. It opens with a word after he's, he's crying out to God, my soul is full of trouble and my life draws near to the grave. The end of Psalm 88 ends with this, the darkness is my closest friend. And so it opens with despair, it ends with despair. It's really the only psalm that I know that's like that. It's a very dark psalm. It's a, the dark of the soul, in the night of the soul psalm. And I'm really grateful that God puts a psalm like that in here because for many of us, we go through dark nights and it feels like God is very far. He's removed from our suffering. We can't 
see what he's doing. We don't feel his presence. We don't sense his love. And that's a reality that we have. And you know what? God knows that that's a reality that we will have at times, and he gives us a psalm for that. And so this psalm, for my son's experience, has been in that category. It takes work to repent. It takes work to trust. But God gives us word and uh, gives us uh, the means through his word. You know, some of the things you can do practically uh, is to protect, yes, your times of scripture reading and prayer. Uh, you know, Susanna Wesley, she had 19 children. This was John and Charles Wesley's mother. 19 children, 10 of them survived. She had some that were uh, struggling with disabilities. Uh, her husband went to prison a couple times because of financial indiscretions uh, and debt. Uh, and she was, like, overwhelmed with just taking care of all these kids. But she learned the discipline of finding time with God, and uh, she would signal her children that when she put her apron over her head, they were to let, they, that was a sign that she was having her time with God. You know, I don't know what it takes for you to get time with God, whether it's an apron over your head or just getting space. Uh, I, I'm finding that I've had trouble having my cell phone next to my bed you know, on a night table. Do you guys have any problem with that? Has anybody here ever found themselves, like, picking up their phone in the middle of the night because it's, like, sitting right next to them? Anybody have that problem at all? Okay, That's, thank you. Thank you for joining me. I appreciate that so much. So this week, I decided, you know, I'm going to take action uh, because I know that that phone is always asking me to pick it up and open it up and check things out. And so I decided I'm putting it in the bathroom. And you know what? My nights have been better so far. Um, uh, this guy, Daniel Levitt-Nog, uh, who I talked about earlier, he says, if you want to be more productive and creative uh, and have more energy, you need to, uh, science dictates that you should partition your day uh, into project periods. He talks about social networking. It creates times where you're not accessed all the time with your social media but that you have certain times where you're addressing emails or addressing things that you have uh, partition and, and care. It takes effort and work to guard our hearts. We not only need to speak people that strive for the rest of his word, we need to be one who goes to the surgeon for rest, the surgeon for rest. And it says in verse 12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing the soul, and the spirit. And what he's talking about here, he's talking about the word of God as being with this imagery as a sword. Uh, the word is not just a word of promise for those who would enter the rest, but it's a sword of discernment and judgment. A sword cuts, it thrusts, it penetrates, it divides. It's able to reach into the depths of a person's inner life, judging the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. It exposes. No one is hidden from it's a sight. Everyone must give an account. When we think about Jesus, we think about two things that we should think about, that Jesus comes full of truth and grace. But the reality is we tend to move towards just the Jesus of grace. 
Uh, we like the Jesus who throws a party. You know, we like the Jesus uh, who, you know, turns the water into wine. We like the Jesus who feeds the thousands and multiplies the fish and the bread. We like Jesus uh, who forgives. Uh, we like his mercy, okay? Those are all good things, and we should like those things, but some of us will struggle with Jesus being angry or Jesus going into the temple courts and throwing over tables and taking a whip and, and, and whipping out the money changers who turned God's house into a den of robbers. Uh, some of us struggle with Jesus insulting the religious rulers, like the disciples the, 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 in Matthew chapter 15. Uh, some Pharisees and teachers of the law uh, were complaining that, his, that Jesus' disciples were bla- breaking the tradition of the elders. And Jesus says, and why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition, you hypocrites? And, uh, he, and he says, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. The disciples heard Jesus like talking to these religious rulers like this, and they, they took Jesus aside and said, don't you realize that you're offending these guys? <laughs> and of course, he did. <laughs> of course he did. He says, leave them. They're blind guides. If a blind man leads a blind man, both will fall in the pit. But here's the thing. A lot of people, they like to create a Jesus that is easy for them, that's comfortable. I like the baby Jesus, you know, the nice cuddly Jesus. But Jesus, you know, he's not just the cuddly Jesus, the comfortable. He's the Jesus of the scriptures. And Jesus will not separate himself from his word. Jesus has given us the Old Testament and the New Testament. He talks to his disciples. He says, uh, the scriptures are what spoke about me. He meets the two disciples on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection, and he unfolds and, and he tells them that what the prophets and the, uh, have communicated are what they're talking about me. So Jesus talks and affirms the scriptures, and he tells the apostles that the Holy Spirit is going to teach you everything that I've commanded you. And he, we have the Old Testament. We have the New Testament. This is the word of God. You cannot separate the scriptures and the, and the, and the inspiration of the scriptures from Jesus. You cannot do that, or you're not going to have the Jesus of the scriptures. In Revelation chapter 19, we find these words about Jesus, and this is one of these more uncomfortable passages, but, he's, but it says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is faithful and true. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns, and his name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. This is Jesus. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so Jesus, he comes in his first coming as the Lamb of God, who is slain for the 
for the sins of man. But when he comes back, he comes back as the judge. And he comes back to bring in, bring in the justice of God. And so Jesus comes full of truth, and he comes full of justice, but he also comes full of grace. And so it's important for us to see the grace in this passage. And, and so in verse 14, we find the sympathizer for our rest. And since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. And he says, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but who, one in every respect, has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So let us draw near. And what we find here is that Jesus, and what we find consistently in Hebrews, is that the writer is constantly telling us about this amazing Savior that we have, who, who came to earth, who loved us to the point that he shed his blood. And the allusion here is, by the way, on the Day of Atonement. Uh, the Day of Atonement was the Yom Kippur. It's the one day of the year where the high priest is able to go into the most holy place in the temple. And he comes with, first, he comes with his own blood uh, to be a sacrifice for the, his sins. And then he brings the blood of the lambs and the goats in order to uh, sprinkle the altar and all the utensils. And to, virtually everything is covered in blood. It's called atonement. It's covering with blood so that God would see the sacrifice of these animals and forgive the people's sins. But of course, the blood of goats and calves were insufficient to cover people's sins, and it demanded a perfect sacrifice, and it demanded a perfect son. And that's what Jesus came to do. And so Jesus comes into the holy place, and he comes not just once a year, but he goes into heavens, and he, he engages right now into the most holy place with his own blood. And the reason that you and I can have access to the throne of God as we come to worship every Sunday, as we pray in our homes, wherever we are, to have immediate access to God is because Jesus went through the heavens with his own blood for us. This is an amazing thing. And he says, he uses the word sympathize, sympathize. And this is a very powerful word. Uh, and it talks, it's not just a casual word of a superficial word uh, that means, uh, you know, a person that might have some level of sympathies. But this sympathy it means to suffer with, to be touched with feeling, to be affected uh, with a sense, uh, to be affected with sorrow. And so this Jesus comes to us and he says, I understand your sufferings. I understand your pain. He never sinned, but he understands very deeply the pain that we go through. And this is what Owen says about this as we close. Our high priest is intimately involved in our infirmities and weaknesses, in the wrestling with them and removing them, and consequently in our troubles, sorrows, suffering, and danger. Since we are members of his mystical bodies, we are united with him, and he is concerned with our troubles. From his own heart and affections, he gives us help and relief as is necessary. He is inwardly moved during our sufferings and trials with a sense of empathy. He is moved. Uh, the verse that we heard from Isaiah chapter 30, where it says, In repentance and rest is your salvation, and quietness and trust is your strength. He says, 
For the Lord rises to show compassion to those who wait on him. You know, God is moved. He's moved to the very depths about your condition, about your sufferings. You have a Savior. You have a high priest who loves you to the depths so that you would be raised to the heights. And so Hebrews tells us to go to him, to draw near. Don't be passive. You have access to the most great high priest right now. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that you would help us to rest in you. Lord, we are a restless people. There are so many forces that seek to rob us. Uh, there are so many forces internally uh, that, that are robbing us of peace. And there's so many forces externally that keep pushing us to, to things that don't give us peace. And so, God, we pray that through your word and Jesus, through you, that we would be able to find our rest, that we would strive to to do the work of faith that is important for our souls. And God, I pray that you would uh, just lift your people up here that are struggling with just resting. Uh, help them to create the boundaries and the space where they can listen to you, to be quiet, to be prayed up by others, uh, to just to find the sweet peace that you want for them. And so, God, we commit these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.